Hi, everyone. Welcome to my podcast, Crow Reads, hosted in partnership with Read Alberta. Crow Reads is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. My name is Rayanne Haynes, and I'm a published author and cultural producer. In this podcast, I interview intersectional writers, publishers, agents, and editors with a focus on Alberta creatives, all with a lens to discover more about their work and their lived experiences. Though this podcast comes to you from a virtual setting, I want to acknowledge it is recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the ancestral and traditional territory of the Cree, Diné, Blackfoot, Soto, Nakota Sioux, as well as the Inuit and Métis people. I want to thank you all for joining my guests and I and for being a part of the conversation. Back in the summer of 2022, I had the immense pleasure of reading a debut poetry collection by a woman named Emily Riddle. And I was blown away and I've been waiting to speak with her ever since. This afternoon, I am talking with Emily about her new collection, The Big Melt. Emily Riddle is Nehiwa and a member of the Alexander First Nation, Kipotegao, a writer, editor, policy analyst, language learner, and visual artist. She lives in Amiskachi, Waskahikin, Edmonton. She is the Senior Advisor of Indigenous Relations at the Edmonton Public Library. Her writing has been published in the Globe and Mail, Teen Vogue, the Malahat Review, and Room Magazine, among others. In 2021, she was awarded the Edmonton Artist Trust Award. Emily Riddle is a semi-dedicated Oilers fan and a dedicated Treaty 6 descendant who believes deeply in the brilliance of the prairies and their people. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you. Um, I mean, I had the chance to read your book some time ago when it was um, getting ready for publication, and I was so just... I just fell in love with it at that point in time. And I think it's a striking book. It's so nuanced. It offers so much to to the reader. And I'm just really excited that you're going to talk with us about it today and that we can share a little bit more about it with people. But I want to start with my first question. And I want to touch on the line in your bio uh, that talks about being a semi-dedicated Oilers fan, which I think is awesome. So the grounding of the sentence alone is I is something that I feel like you thread through the entire collection. Um, it feels like a book that is rooted in home. Um, you talk about Twitter, Miley Cyrus, McDonald's, uh, seeing your grandmother wear pants in Sobeys, which I have to say was one of my favorite little snippets of the book, that, that piece. And yet you also fluidly intersect the personal or even the humorous with the political. So I'm hoping that you can talk to us a little bit about how you approach that fluidity within the writing. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that the humor comes through. It really de- it depends who I who reads the book, whether they see it as being very sad or very humorous. And I'm trying to like find a little bit in the middle between those two things. Um yeah. 
even with with the buyer when I'm talking about being a semi-dedicated Oilers fan is just to bring a little bit of levity because I think sometimes uh bios for writers can be so long and and I and I feel um like a little bit strange about being too braggy in bios too like to bring a little bit of levity um and humor to that too even you're talking about publications or awards which is kind of a box that we're put into in candlelit to to market ourselves in yeah. that way but to to make it personal about um being a semi-dedicated Oilers fan even though um well we'll see I think they're gonna do well this year actually um <laughs> in the Pacific Division but um being a little bit fickle about being an Oilers fan but being like a very dedicated um treaty descendant who understands my uh, is two kind of ways of understanding belonging to a place definitely yeah yeah the belonging to the place and that is fluid throughout the entire book as well that that identity to place because you were born in Edmonton correct and then you lived in Vancouver for for some time and then you're back in Amiskachi Weskahagen do you feel like that leaving and coming back shifted your connection to place or how you write about place I think so. I didn't really realize until I was recently in Vancouver doing a joint launch for this book with Jessica Johns. Mm. Um, we celebrated her book, Bad Cree, and my book at Massey Books, which is an Indigenous-owned bookstore in Vancouver. And I didn't realize till I was flipping through trying to pick poems to read how much it is actually about the coast and the prairies and, yeah. and the movement between those two places. Um, I thought, oh, I wrote a book about the prairies, but it isn't just about that. It is kind of a book about homecoming too. Yeah. So I think I really didn't appreciate um, the way in which I'm affixed to or have relationships to this territory until I came back. I think it, it, came through living on someone else's land and working for First Nations in BC and seeing their kind of um, grounded normativity and, and relationship to place um, that I really realized that I had this here, even though I was raised in the city. And I write about this a little bit in the book too, the way that my mom made sure that we had relationship to to the land at Edmonton and to the river, to yeah. um, even like the Columbia ice fields that feed all of the um, rivers in our territory. So um, yeah, I think it did take moving away and coming back, which is like the most Edmonton thing you can do, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> moved to Vancouver, Montreal. <laughs> uh, yeah, my husband just did that and moved to Vancouver for a year and then was like, no, <laughs> I've got to come home. So in, in 2021, you worked with mentor Joshua Whitehead um, through the Writers Trust. Amazing. Um, and he, I was doing some research and he said this about you. So he said, Riddle's poetics are timely and relevant, literary and literal, political and embodied. She animates the land as, as a being too, allowing it to speak and never forgoes its desire. So you've already kind of touched on this a little bit, but um, can you talk to me about that kind of collective kinship to land um, that you have as uh, um, a woman and how that is threaded through the book? Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, it was such an honor to work with Josh and to have my manuscript chosen for that. I think yeah. um, he definitely, he worked with me on actually making the book a, a manuscript and like a cohesive piece. It's like so, it's so nice to work with an editor who sees the themes. You're like, here's a bunch yeah. of poems. I'm not exactly sure what this is at this point in time, especially for a first collection, because it often ends up being poems from a bunch of different um, time mm -hmm. periods in your life. Um, so he really 
combed through it. And I've, I've never taken a creative writing class. I, I'm not like trained in that way. I'm trained in political science and policy. Mm -hmm. So um, poetry was definitely a left turn in that regard. So it was very helpful um, to work with him and, and to work with another queer Cree writer who, who saw kind of like some cultural nuances and things like that or language. Um, but he's also really understood that kind of collection, collective kinship to land that you're talking about, like the, that the land is almost a character in, mm -hmm. in the book as well, um, that speaks back, um, to, to me or to other people that are in the book as speakers. So, um, that was really important for him to kind of see that. Um, and that, I mean, the book is also one of the themes that I explore throughout it is climate change. And so, yeah. Um, we see like the land speaking back to kind of what has been um, done onto it throughout time. Yeah. I want to ask you, there was a question that I had, well, two things that you brought up that I'm one about kind of like how you structured the book, but I'll wait. <laughs> um, and then the other one you talked about, because I find this really relevant. You talked about having no creative writing um, background or, or MFA degree. Um, and I do not either. I think a lot of the authors that I speak with do not. Um, and so I guess I kind of want to ask you about what, um, kind of drew you to the, to the idea of poetry as, as a lens for the work that you wanted to share. Mm hmm. It actually came from having like a really crappy experience in grad school at UBC studying political theory and then doing policy work in my professional life and kind of feeling really boxed in in those types of writing, like very academic theory writing or or policy writing where I was writing like land codes and membership codes and like very technical writing. Yeah. Um, I was also living in East Vancouver which is like a, a very like queer neighborhood on commercial drive. And I, I just became friends with a lot of poets and I found um, creative writing, particularly poetry was a way for me to think through like a, a world that I wanted to exist that didn't, that I couldn't think through in academic or policy writing. So it was kind of like a little level of freedom that I saw um, in being able to communicate this way, which was a big left turn, I think, life-wise. Sometimes I'm like, <laughs> I can't believe I have a poetry book, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and what a book. And I love that you uh, mentioned um, kind of that creative creativity or the freedom that you found in the queer community because I find that as well like there is such a creative force within the queer community and it's an, an honor to kind of be around that or embedded in that or or to, and to read that in your work so yeah thank you well why don't I ask you now if you can read a piece from the book um, I've left them up to you um, and so if you can just tell us the the piece and then and then share. I think I'm going to read belongings. And this actually is kind of comes naturally flows from our conversation. So this is about um, having non-Indigenous ancestors and um, that kind of complicated uh, existence or um, I don't know, nuance. And I, I find that a lot of Indigenous people don't always talk about their settler ancestors or that kinship. So that was important for me to include. So belongings. <clears throat> Sometimes I think about my settler ancestors, the Scottish, Swedish, Danish, Irish ones, who hauled their bodies across the ocean to eventually become dirt, to become Indian land itself, to become me, an Ehio 
We are, in the end, just material. These ancestors came over on ships made of trees from their lands. I doubt anyone asked these trees what they thought of this or if they wanted to leave. Knowledge keepers here say that trees communicate from coast to coast through their roots. Do you think some European trees miss their relatives or know they are over here? Do they feel sad they don't belong like I do? Have they learned to live together with the original trees? Yeah, I love that poem. Um, I love the line about how they communicate through their roots and it feeds um, so much into this, like you said, this conversation with the land that you're having and um, and the heritage and and then the questioning of, you know, those trees, but really those those bodies that are that have come over and that are now here. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a beautiful piece. Thank you very much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, and from that, I do want to ask you more about kinship um, and the way that you write about kinship with relatives and the land. Um, you touch on kinship in heritage um, and what it looks like to be a modern, uh, you know, a modern in Indigenous woman in the prairies. Um, in the poem, Learning to Count, um, which I, gosh, I love that poem so much. Um, you write, and I and I will, I am going to end up mispronouncing the first line. Nistanao um, Beakosap. That's good, yeah. That's okay. Good. And then Homeland Swagger, bougie Indians drinking $8 beers on a patio, which in Metis, Nehiwa, niche grannies don't approve. Once a Nehiwa granny told me, that if she saw me in city pants, she would rip them off me. Women should wear skirts. I saw her in Sobeys with jeans on. I was wearing a mini skirt. I just I love everything about that piece so much. And so I want to ask you if you can talk a bit about the importance for you to write about both traditional expectations or ways of moving through the world and then more current Indigenous experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think kinship is definitely a theme that lives throughout like all Cree writers' books. I think we get made fun of a lot by other Indigenous people, like the amount we talk about kinship or in our language is uh, Wakotawin, so, which is actually just how we're connected to everyone. And so when we think about like making treaty or um, any kind of relationships with folks is really like how how are we related to these people because then we're accountable to each other if we are in relation with each other so it all it ultimately ends up being like a, a large-scale like law or, or way to to view the world um, with this poem which is actually probably the poem that was the easiest to write in the book like sometimes poems come really easily <laughs> and sometimes you have to sit down and <laughs> Set a timer and, and make yourself write. This one I actually wrote in Den and Day in a class. I guess I did take one writing class, I'm being untrue, <laughs> with Richard Van Camp. Um, oh, this is a poem that Richard. I wrote for him. Um, in that class, I did at Bichinta Bush University. So we were like living um, in the bush, like an hour outside of Yellowknife. Um, and so, yeah, this component is, um, it is always a balance thinking through, like for Cree people, we really maintained our Plains Cree, like our um, our whole, like our oral history and our history of creation story. And that has like the answers to uh, why everything is the way we are, like why ceremonies are certain ways, why we do everything. But at the same time, 
Um, and in that, that history of creation story, like women are very honored, like in our culture traditionally, um, and, and not limited to cis women, which is something I also write in the book too, mm-hmm. like women being an expansive kind of um, responsibility rather than your biological um, necessarily, although that like making children or um, bringing people into the world is obviously important too. So um but at the same time, we obviously have influence of Catholicism and the church, which has um, altered how women are viewed in our communities or disempowered people. And so um, traditionalism has become distorted in a lot of ways to um, where women, particularly on the prairies, I would say, face a lot of misogyny, even though that isn't um, our actual teachings. And I'm super lucky to work with elders who really respect and honor the uh, roles of women to a point uh, like I feel um, comfortable in that too, taking on those and and doing things like wearing long skirts because I understand um, how that fits into larger creation story. But it is um, often like policed on people to um, be modest for or um, the gender binary police on people. So this is kind of a play on that to... Um, to tell people uh, that like if we're considering traditionalism, it means like the whole thing with women being respected. Um, And so it is interesting, like uh, traditional versus modern. And that's kind of time that I wanted to play with in the book too, um, because time isn't always linear for us. It could be like um, writing about ancestors. Um, For some, some of our beliefs are that we were always in certain places, like uh, we were watching all descendants watching when they made treaty, things like that. So time is always a little bit muddled or um, like elders will say in the we're in the forever now. So yeah. considering like, yeah, what are those core values and if we're how we're uh, living them in a modern time where we have, I don't know, seeing elders in Sobeys or <laughs> living in cities and things like that. Yeah. Too. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to be listening to this podcast just for myself, I think quite often. Um, (laughs) Okay. You both, you did break the book up into four sections. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they are titled the big kinship, the big melt, the big prayer, and then the big horizon. And this is kind of a a two-parter. So um, I wanted to ask you how you approached determining the structure of the book. Maybe that was in part with, um, Joshua Whitehead, but then also all the poems in the big prayer are named after a color, which I was really intrigued by and trying to find the theme of the color within each poem. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that structure of the book and then the, the naming of the, of the pieces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Four sections. Um, it's, I think there's always a debate in a poetry book. I was like, I leave it one big thing, but I really wanted to have sections that kind of punctuated how people thought of it and like the the big melts um the actual name comes from thinking about like a romantic relationship cooling um climate change like the kind of relief that we feel on the prairies um when things start to melt like so kind of all of those things together um four sections was because I don't know Crees always do things in fours (laughs) it's a significant number for us like um, all of our ceremonies are four days. Um, we talk about, um, yeah, taking four days for something to go from your head to your heart to be integrated into your body. So, um, fours are kind of always how we end up doing things. 
Um, and then the, and also the big, I mean, I love the big Lebowski. So it's kind of <laughs> on that too, <laughs> like that movie. And then also I talk about uh, one of my relatives in the book, Big Bear. So, um, which is a play on actually like his name in Cree is Mistahe Masqua. Um, and the word for big can mean like big or a lot of in uh -huh. our language. So it's a little bit different. Um, but the four sections, like big kinship wanted to have like a section that's about my family and kinship to territory and land. Um, the big melt is kind of where all the um, breakup poems live, <laughs> that melting down of romantic relationships or like reflecting on the romantic relationships I've had in my 20s and so far in my 30s. Um, the big prayer is actually so um, our Nehio rainbow is uh, regular rainbow colors, but also with an addition of light blue. And so often... Um, when you offer cloth or ribbon to an elder, you'll bring all of those rainbow colors because um, that is in itself a big prayer, that rainbow prayer. So there is actually um, philosophies or kind of laws that go around each of those colors. So I wanted to kind of ruminate on um, all of those colors in that section. It's also like a kind of owed a little bit to Maggie Nelson too. Like if I, my cover of my book is also kind of similar to her cover Bluettes. It's a play on that too. So um, the big prayer is that. Um, and also with my Cree name is actually has to do with um, like a rainbow or a rainbow Thunderbird too. So it's also in relation to that. And then, yeah, the big horizon is just like kind of forward-looking um, future kind of poems and also thinking about that like big horizon of the prairies that I really um, missed mm -hmm. when I was living in the like cereal bowl that is <laughs> Vancouver, <laughs> the mountains. Yeah. I'm so glad I asked you that question. Uh, I don't, you know, I mean, I think often I will ask a question about structure and many people are a little still unclear about why they structured it that way, or it just was something that happened, but you have this beautiful response and reasoning and I, the, I, uh, you know, and what an important gift I actually think to give your readers now who may not have understood that the color, the importance of the, the colors and the rainbows within that section. I'm so glad I asked you. Um, <laughs> wow. Thank you. Okay. I would like to ask you now to share another poem with us and is it going to be dinosaur economics? That's what I'm going to read, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, this one, dinosaur economics, it starts off with a little um, quote from Leroy Little Bear. So, um, ask the dinosaurs what happened to them. We asked one of our elders, why did those why did those dinosaurs disappear? He thought about it for a while and he said, maybe they didn't do their ceremonies. Um I wanted bitumen to be made of dead dinosaurs. Why did I want these ancient kin to be passively implicated in the fossil fuel industry? It felt like an appropriate way to romanticize the disaster of the tar sands. How tragic to be killed by a meteorite and for your remains to warm the planet to dis into disaster millions of years later. Perhaps this is a means of climate change coping, a weird one. However, in my research for this poem, I concluded that the Ford F-150s of Alberta are not burning dinosaurs to propel themselves. In fact, petroleum, natural grass, etc., come from plankton, marine organisms, and bacteria from oceans three billion years ago. So the entire term fossil fuels is a strange, incorrect one. Others were also attached to dinosaurs as part of the energy sector, but for different reasons. 
The term tar sand still remains jarring to me as someone who grew up in Alberta. Maybe this surprises you about me, but the programming in this province began early. I distinctly remember learning about have-not provinces in elementary school, how we paid for their free daycare. What I did not learn was that none of the land below the depth of Oplau was surrendered in treaty, that my Nehio ancestors would have never understood children going hungry in a land of such prosperity. There was prosperity here before money, oil wells, and pipelines. There will be prosperity after those cease to be here. In 2006, my working class family of four, three out of four of which are treaty Indians, received a check for $1,600 from the Klein government due to a surplus of the booming oil economy. That year, we went on vacation, packed up a station wagon filled to the brim, fueled by old sea creatures. Mm. I love the conflict in that poem and how you move through, yeah, that existence of being in this province while questioning what that means and yeah like very like alberta is very complicated it is it's very complicated Mm -hmm. um and your line about you know the programming that you know we're (laughs) we're programmed from birth um in this province to exist a certain way live a certain way not question a certain thing although now of course that is changing with with um, us and, and younger generations and um, yeah it's a gorgeous poem and it asks people to listen and I think that's what makes it so powerful mm-hmm. um, so along that lines um, there was an interview that I read that you did for the Victoria Festival's uh, Festival of Authors and you touched on the kinship that you have with animals and how you bring this into that work And so I wanted to ask if you could talk a bit about the connection that you see um, between the land and animal and the relationship you see between the two as framing for this political um, and environmental disasters like you're talking about in dinosaur economics. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Um, This is is a really good question. It's something I actually haven't reflected on in this book is like the... um, or like since the book has been published, like how many many animal references or like creature references? I'm not sure if dinosaurs are considered. A- I guess they are animals. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> not around anymore. I'm like, but they um, there is quite a bit of presence of like for magpies, for example, play a big part in my book. Um, and I and that's partially like being advocates for magpies. I have a, a poem about an ex-girlfriend kind of thinking they were annoying and, and, and relating to these magpies because um, they used to follow the buffalo and um, eat the bugs off of them. And now that those, we don't have giant herds of buffalo on the prairies anymore, they kind of, they, we've been taught that they have this like intergenerational trauma and this is why they behave um, in kind of rude ways sometimes. Yeah. Um, so having to kind of uh, treat them with kindness for that reason, even though they're sometimes like shit disturbers. So magpies are often um, a, ca- a character in this book. Um, I talk about like beavers are really significant in that um, uh, in a Cree girl explodes a pro- political project called Alberta about kind of um, helping dismantle the Alberta legislature. So I think for for us, like it relates back to that kinship that we um, that animals are another kind of kinship or relationship that we have. And I mean, we're taught 
in the Bible that um, humans are given dominion over the planet and in our teachings, it's, it's not like that we're um, on the same kind of level as them. So um, that kind of kinship is, is different and, and more lateral. It's very interesting. Uh, I feel like I'm learning so much from you. Uh, the the idea that magpies have intergener- intergenerational trauma <laughs> because they don't have the buffalo anymore as a con- as their connector. Wow, Emily. <laughs> All right. Well, I have one more. I have one more kind of big question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when I was reading um, the book, you know, it feels like. To me, as as a settler, um, it felt like a love letter to your mother um, and to Indian Joy. And I have talked at length before. I wrote my thesis uh, about the expectation um, of publishing that is centered in trauma for um, non-white, non-white writers. And so I don't want to ask you why it's important not to do that, because I think that's a you know question that's asked far too often. But I want to ask you if you can talk to us about how you moved through the collection in a way that centered joy, while also at the same time making space that is needed to interrogate those politics and and decolonization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mom is a frequent um, character in the book, um, which is something I, I I mean I did realize when I was publishing. I have you know, there's a, a set of poems that are also about her. Um, specifically but she is throughout and I think like moms are just like the most influential person in your life generally um, as much as dads can try <laughs> um, like having a mom and we're also like matrilineal people so for mm-hmm. us like you get your clan and your nation and everything from your mother so um, that also comes from that as well um, so she yeah definitely an influential person on my life in my life that taught me to have relationship to this territory despite like um, so many things that have tried to remove us from being in relationship to where we live and to uh, each other. Um, and also, yeah, centering joy in the book, I mean, um, was important to kind of have that as a foil to, I mean, like all the shitty <laughs> shitty processes and structures that you can critique, um, but also that we've made room for joy. So I think like Billy Ray Belcourt always talks about like the purpose of being poetry to find freedom. And so um, I, I can see that as, as whether it's imagining a world that doesn't exist that in which we're more free and experience that joy or to um, talk about that joy that we already have and kind of um, balloon it outwards and make more space for that too. So it was important to me. Like, I feel like is a good compliment when people say that book is funny or yeah. joyful um, is good too, rather than, um, always just sad, <laughs> which is, I think there's value in writing sad books too, but it's um, not really my personality <laughs> to not. Yeah. I I'm the melancholy writer, uh, <laughs> you're the joyful writer, <laughs> you know, my mother just passed away recently. And so when I was rereading your book, um, in anticipation of our conversation, I just wanted to share with you how, how important that felt um, to, to witness that, that love and that joy that, um, and the teachings that your mother has offered you and you're sharing that in the book. So I wanted to thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I would like you to, to ask you to read one more poem for us to kind of read us out of this podcast. 
Um, and it, the title, the English title is Joy. Maybe you can share. Oh, is that what you're going to read? Yeah. That's what okay. Mean. Okay. I, just I was thinking, to... I was like, I don't even know if I read this poem out loud before. So this is actually the last poem that was written out of the collection. It's definitely like an ode to my friends. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, and of bringing friends together from uh, multiple places. So it's also like the title, Kigwai Itwe Joy, um, came from my own Cree language learning. So Kigwai Itwe means like, how do you say it? So when you're learning the language, um, you're saying to speakers a lot of the time, like Kigwai Itwe, like bubbly or whatever you're trying right. to say. Like, I don't, how do you say this? Uh, when you're trying not to speak in English, which is really difficult. <laughs> so that's Kigwai Itwe Joy. I wish this book was just about Cree joy, but there are so many things obfuscating this timeline, so I write as much as I can, even if it's fantasy. On the way to a barbecue on a house just off Commercial Drive, I ask what kind of burgers you want me to bring, and you remind me you can't eat bison because it's your clan. The delicate balance of Cree joy requires CBD gummies, government-sponsored therapy, metamucil, probiotics, osteopathy, praise. On the way to the golf course built on stolen Enoch Cree Nation land, we blast Billy Talent and talk about how we can never live without the vastness of our homelands again. The delicate balance of Cree joy requires regular Indian Mario Kart nights, eight glasses of water a day, a week without microaggressions. On the way to McDonald's in your Jeep, we talk about disappointing white lovers, how we ultimately believe so deeply in our ability to romantically flourish. The delicate balance of Cree joy requires Dr. Pepper Slurpees, REM sleep, a bowl of vegetables, lactate, a night out dancing. On the way to our regular park spot where we drink iced oat milk lattes, I pick you up and we both remark on each other's new outfits and new beadwork. The delicate balance of pretty joy requires pep talks from your dad, new poetry books, no disciplinary obligations to be joyful. Mm, it's such a gorgeous poem. This is entirely different, but when I read that poem, I kept thinking about the um, poetic essay by Natalie Diaz called When I Say Hummingbird, When I Say Fall Into My Mouth. Have you read it? No. Oh, I hope you, I'll send you a link um, because I, I they're, they're different, right? But her piece is kind of around that questioning of like, what is joy? What is language when we are asked to exist in a place that has removed our language or has removed our opportunity for joy and love. Mm -hmm. And the way you write about it in your poem is so like, it's just showing me where I'm reading the ways that you flourish as a woman, as a friend, as a Cree woman. Um, and it's just a beautiful poem. I love it so much. So thank you for sharing it. Yeah. Thank you for the book. I hope people go and pick it up and it's through who again? Through Nightwood Editions. Night, Nightwood Editions. So if people want to go pick up um, Emily's book through Nightwood Editions, they can get it at Glass Books, Audrey's Books, um, Macy's Books in Vancouver, if that's where you are. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and, and sharing more about the work. Yeah, thank, thank you very much for very good questions. They made me reflect on things I hadn't thought about before. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> with my book, yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs>